Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I worry both about the relationships that are lost, the communities that are strained because of our bad disagreements, but I worry more about the people who see all that and say, why would you take that risk and engage in disagreement? I do think that's a smaller life because you lose out on all the things you could have learned about other people, but also about yourself through the process of conversation. And it's a smaller life for us as a community because that's where community emerges when the boundaries of one and other blur. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I reckon we're all feeling it. The world seems to be bickering itself into a go-nowhere hellhole. And good Lord, it's despairing. I find myself asking myself constantly, how did we come to this? How did it get so intractable? Polarisation, bifurcation, fragmentation, zero-sum online fights, gaslighting and bad faith arguments. It's all defining our times and it's certainly the background theme music to most of the discussions here on Wild with various guests who are legitimately trying to find better ways to live a life with our beloved humans on this planet. As I've described in previous episodes, this is the metacrisis, the crisis that exists behind and atop everything else. It's our inability to argue well, and it's creating the disasters, whether it's the climate crisis, political insurrections, nuclear precariousness, the whole thing. And it's also stopping us from solving these crises once we become brutally aware of the mess that we're in. We need to argue better. And as you might be aware, I've committed to an ongoing discussion here on WILD to this effect. In a previous episode, for instance, I speak to master negotiator Sarah Ness about authentic relating, and I'll put that episode in the show notes. And I have a bunch more experts lined up for future episodes. But my guest today is possibly the best placed person in the world to talk us through the tactics and framings of good argument. Bo Seo is the two-time world debating champion and author of Good Argument with the subtitle, What the Art of Debating Can Teach Us About Listening Better and Disagreeing Well. Bo is also Australian, having arrived as an immigrant from South Korea when he was eight. 
And he's also pretty wild. He argues that the problem of polarisation isn't that we disagree. He, in fact, says the problem is we need to disagree more, but to do so way better. Bo's currently studying at Harvard Law School, where he also has a master's in public policy. And he spoke to me from his dorm room. And so you might hear a fellow student's music in the background. It doesn't bother me. And I told Bo you'd all be okay with it as well. Bo's a great conversationalist. And I imagine this goes with the territory. Welcome to Wild Bo. It's so lovely to speak to you from the other side of the world. Such a pleasure to be with you, Sarah. Thanks very much. Look, I am so intrigued by your story. I really want to know how you were drawn into debating because you arrived in Australia at the age of eight, not speaking English. You learned English in one year. So by nine, you were able to speak English. But I imagine it would be a bit of a scary thing to do out there in the world. You've also described yourself as a highly agreeable person. (laughs) And then (laughs) I think it was by the age of 10, you were a debater. How did you find yourself falling into debating? So you're right. There was the part about uh, moving from South Korea to Australia when I was eight. There was the part about not speaking the language. But there was also this question about how I should be in this new society and and specifically how I should be with others. Right. And the answer that I came to was I should be agreeable. I should be a good guy because mm. I felt as one of the few Asian kids in my school, probably the only one who didn't speak the language, that my differences were threatening, that they could mark me out as an outsider. And the combination of those two things made me resolve to be very agreeable to nod and smile and keep a lot of my thoughts to myself. And the thing that changed for me and the thing that got me into debate was a promise that my year five teacher made me, which was that on the debate team, when one person speaks, no one else does, right? And and counterintuitive as debate and disagreement is for someone like me, that's such a rare thing too, to be able to talk interrupted, not in agreement with what's going on, but in disagreement and be heard. That promise of order, that sense that even though we're on different sides on any given issue, we're engaged in the same kind of activity, right? That we're doing something together. I think that together piece was very important to me too. So... I love that you write this in your book. The right to gripe and object is a cornerstone of our democracy, but so too is its shadow, the responsibility to learn, to practice and to take care to disagree well. And I think elsewhere you've written, even if you're correct, you have to invest the time and the work to basically, and I think you say the training, to be able to make the point effectively. So what you're saying there is that we have a responsibility not just to be right and bludgeon whatever way we want, you know, we've got to find an artful way to get a point across. That's what being an adult's about. Like we've got to fire up and find the best way to get points across. And that that really strikes me as pretty profound at the moment, Bo, because I think there are a lot of people out there who I think are quote unquote in the right, but they're unable to get the point across. And so I'm wondering if you could talk us through, firstly, how to make a really good point and then we'll move on to how to disagree well. So let's start with actually making a good point. What are the kind of ingredients to that? How do we go about that? 
So you're quite right. One of the first things that you learn in debate, I think, is that there's a difference between being right and persuasive. And you learn this because you are placed into arguing for a position that you firmly believe is correct. And you think all the evidence, all the history is on your side. And the failure when you lose is not always that your position is incorrect, is but that you are the less persuasive side on the day, right? So that's one thing that helps bring that home. Another is in debate, the average speaker gets to speak between five to seven minutes, right? There's not a whole lot of time when you think about how much loose chat that we do day to day. And in the preparation for that, you do an hour of preparation, usually at a minimum on that topic alone. But there's also the continual work of the craft of it, right? So when you're presenting yourself in those five to seven minutes, it's the best of you. And I think that's what disagreements demand of us, right? So there's a lot of Mm. talk recently about free speech and so on and freedom of conscience, freedom of expression. But freedom is actually, you know, a funny thing to talk about in the context of conversation because for me it seems like one of the prices we pay for genuine conversation is some personal freedom so that we can accommodate the other side, so that we can try and connect. It feels like something more special to me and responsibility is a big part of that. So to illustrate it with your question about how we actually make arguments, so debate starts with this essential insight, which is that any argument that you're making has to do at least two things. So one is you have to show that the main claim that you're making is true. And second, that it's important or that it should change the other person's mind. So if you're making the argument that we should all be vegetarian because it's good for the environment, you have to show, first of all, that it's in fact good for the environment, otherwise it's not going anywhere, and that the fact that it's good for the environment means we should go vegetarian, as opposed to privileging personal enjoyment or cultural practice or family tradition or something like that. And so those are the two burdens of any argument. And the framework that I talk about to help people remember to do that is called the four W's which is every argument should answer these four questions. What is the point that you're making? Mm -hmm. Why is it true? When has it happened before? And who cares, right? That's the part about whether it should change behavior. So what, why, when, and who cares? And that's a basic framework to help people keep in mind those two things that an argument needs to do. Yeah, that's really helpful, actually. The important bit is something that I think people drop off, right? We get so caught in who's more right than than someone else. For sure, because, you know, and I think the reason for that is the who cares or the importance is not about you. It's about the other side, right? So you move from here are all the reasons why I'm right, and that's a process of research, introspection, personal experience to who cares, which is why should it matter to you? And the rest of the world, presumably. And the rest of the world. That brings me actually to a technique you write about in the book, which I'd love you to describe, but then also frame it in terms of how we could use it 
beyond the debating room and it's called the side switch. I think it's something that debaters do all the time. I'm really intrigued by this idea that you prepare in one hour, you do your research in one hour, but you segment off a part of that period for what's called the side switch. Can you talk us through that? Sometimes certainty can be the enemy of good conversation and good disagreement in particular right? When you're absolutely sure, (laughs) that's actually the time when you're least persuasive very often. Um, You're least cautious, least likely to think about the person across the table from you. And so after you've become so convinced of your case, you've spent 55 minutes out of the hour becoming quite convinced of your side, you then turn to a fresh sheet of paper and try and come up with the four best arguments for the other side. Yes. Or you go through what you've written as if through the eyes of someone who fervently disagrees and try and poke as many holes as possible. And there are a couple more variants like that, but that's just a paper and pen practical way to get out of your head a little bit, to look at yourself not only from a critical distance, but from the distance of someone who might disagree with you. I think you reference Warren Buffett in all of this, that he once proposed that company boards should hire two advisors on potential acquisitions, one to advocate for the deal and the other to oppose. It's a really good example. I think you mentioned Netflix. They've got a company motto, right? Something along the lines of the bigger the decision, the more extensive the debate. And I think Einstein worked to a similar premise. He said, the bigger the problem, the more time I spend in it. I think out of one hour, he spends 59 minutes thinking about the problem and, and then sort of one minute um, trying to solve it and, and and convince people of it, you know? So it's interesting. I love that. Yeah, I think there are, there are sort of two pieces there. One is um, we're so used to thinking about disagreement as something we engage in when we have everything worked out. And that, I think, is almost uniquely a problem because then the objective of disagreement becomes safeguarding what we already believe against outside attack, as opposed to using it as a process of discovery um, and of expansion, right? Yeah, I call it the wrestle. And quite often when we're talking really big moral, ethical issues, which Mm -hmm. the world faces today, and we, we really don't have the leaders and the frameworks and the institutions to help us, I emphasize the notion of the moral wrestle. The wrestle's Mm. important, but we get so scared of entering the wrestle pit, you know, until we've got everything mapped out and we've got our argument in our back pocket ready to go. But I I love that you emphasize that. Yeah, and I Mm. like that metaphor a lot because there is that kind of overlapping, right? And it captures well what one thing I like a lot about debaters. It's not this clean, one side has this position, one side has another position. It's through the process of conversation, our sense of the possibilities expand. Sometimes, you know, I've been in these discussions where you end up kind of caring about their arguments more than they do, and there are parts of your argument that they end up adopting, and and that feels like a real kind of intimacy to me. Yeah, that's nice. That's art. That's true art. But the toughest part, of course, of doing anything today in 2023 is dealing with bad faith arguers. You've just been describing good faith argument. You know, the bullies, the bullshitters, you know, they're prolific at the moment. The people who deal in false equivalents, gaslighters, so on and so forth. There's a lot of that going on. I'd love you to talk us through a couple of your favourite challenges and how to combat it, how to actually 
turn a debate away from bullshitting and going down into that quagmire towards something that's more artful? Yeah, I'll answer at two levels. So one is there are tactics, right? Debate, like any other kinds of specialized forms of disagreement, have developed some workarounds and some knowledge about how we deal with some of these moves that the bad faith debaters tend to make. So to give you an example, one common tactic is called wrangling, which is to say no to everything without actually offering a positive suggestion. And and this doesn't have to be so malign in every instance. So imagine you're going on a trip with your partner and then you say Hawaii and then you say Adelaide, you say Europe. And for every suggestion, they can come up with you know, 15 problems with that. And the response to a wrangler is to say, well, what's your suggestion, right? So to pin them to a positive position. And then it becomes an equal discussion, right? It becomes a comparison. Behind every negative claim is a positive statement. And it's a matter of unearthing that. And sometimes the positive statement is, we just stay exactly where we are. Yeah, so the partner that's dissing on Hawaii and Adelaide and everything, it's like, all oh, right, so is your position that we don't go anywhere? Is that what you're saying? Exactly, right? So um, that's that's one example. Another is liars and bullshit, as you said, is, is a kind of a feature of our age. And one of the things that debaters learn to do is not to respond to every single lie that comes up because that's a part of the tactic, right, to overwhelm. And that is a part of how bad faith debate works. And so you don't respond to every lie that you can think of or that they've raised, but rather you choose a representative example. You show the ways in which it doesn't align with reality. You supply an alternative that does better fit with how we understand the world to be. And you explain how this is typical of an approach that they're taking to the debate, right? So there are these kinds of tactics, countermeasures, I call them sort of defense against the dark arts kind of moves. But I think once you've done that, you want to then shift to a second gear, which is to try and remind the other person and anyone who might be listening, what kind of conversation we're trying to have. And what we're trying to have is a debate. And it's not a brawl or a name-calling contest. It's not shows of dominance. And my hope is that a citizenry, a population that understands and embraces that kind of disagreement as opposed to these unsatisfying, dangerous substitutes, that that's a population that's a bit more immune to the kinds of manipulations that we've been talking about. So I have been in situations, I'm sure everyone listening has as well, where you are dealing with a bullshitter or a liar and you find yourself quite exhausted by having to bog yourself down in constantly having to establish the truth before you can actually progress any further. How do you get around that? Is your technique something that can assist with that? One framework or one way I would think about this is that every disagreement should start with some agreement, right? And the two ways in which you might be able to use that in your everyday life is, first of all, to ask, what would it take for me to convince you, right? Or what standard of evidence would it take for me to establish that this claim is true, 
Because the problem with that kind of post-truth person that you're describing is they keep shifting the goalposts, right? They say, you know, give us a study. And then you've given them a study and they say, not that kind of study. And so establishing beforehand what kind of evidence would convince you, I think that's one thing. I think a second part of that agreement is agreeing about what you're actually disagreeing about, right? So there can be all this wrangling and changing of the topic when you say you're talking about one thing and because that the other person feels like they're losing in that discussion, they shift to talking about something completely different. So coming to some agreement at the beginning and say, hey, I'm happy to have this disagreement with you, but let's agree about what it's going to take to persuade each other. Let's agree about what we're talking about. Um, and holding them accountable to that promise that they made, I think can be useful in some circumstances. Yeah, so fr- getting a bit meta, framing things and coming back to that framing. So when the liar tends to go off and bring in all these other bits and pieces, you keep bringing it back to, oh, actually, we've agreed to talk about this, so let's just stay here. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And thinking about conversation as a technology as as a tool that we have that's within our powers to shape and to construct it's a little bit counterintuitive to this model that we have that the best conversations are free flowing and iterative and of course there's room for that kind of conversation but there's also situations where we have to be more intentional especially in these disagreements that are high stakes often recurring and can spiral out of control without our doing something about it. Mm, I think you've applied that notion of having a conversation about the conversation throughout the conversation at the beginning of it as well. But I think you've I think I've heard you apply it as well to people who actually don't want to have a debate. They actually want to hurt. And we know people like that uh, and we know what those conversations feel like. And you've said that this technique can be really helpful in those instances as well where you're going, you're just wanting to get at me, you know, and, yeah, that's trolls, it's bullies, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, is there any sort of tips that you can share about framing that conversation from the outset? It's such an important point and there is actually a strain running through my interest and my writing, which is the knowledge that conversations can be incredibly painful, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's an important part of it. And the tool that I'll give you here is one of the things that I had to learn the hard way (laughs) is once you kind of train as a debater, you know, you're holding a hammer and everything looks like a nail. And it's a sign of cleverness to be able to win every argument to rebut every point, but it takes wisdom to know which to respond to and which to let go. That's my next question. How do you pick your battles, right? How do you know when to walk away because this is not a fight worth going into? So the framework that I have for thinking about when to engage in a dispute or to skip it is called the RISA checklist, which is four questions to ask before jumping into a disagreement. The first is whether the disagreement between you and the other side is in fact real. So it's not an imagined slight or you are feeling a little bit raw and vulnerable that day. It's real. Second, that the disagreement is important enough to justify having a disagreement about it. Mm -hmm. The third is that 
you frame the conversation specifically enough so that you're going to be able to make some progress on it, right? So if you're having a, a business meeting about a particular hire that you have to do, rethinking the hiring strategy uh, in that 15 minutes that you've allotted to choosing between two people is just not specific enough, right? And then the fourth is checking that the two sides are aligned in their reasons for wanting to engage in that dispute. And it doesn't always have to be that you have the same reasons, because one of the things that I want to insist is that we have we can get lots of different things from an argument. That's not just persuading the other person. We can learn, we can grow deeper in our relationships with others, but you have to be okay with the motivations the other side has. So if they're in it just to hurt you or to draw blood, then you you don't want to be in that conversation. So the checklist is, is the disagreement real? Is it important enough? Is it specific? And are the two sides aligned? And I think that checklist slows things down. It gives you some things to consider so that you're not reacting in a knee-jerk way to something that is a disagreement that has presented itself. So outside of the debating world, if you're in a meeting or if you're in a relationship scenario, do you advocate, I mean, it sounds very mechanical, but I suppose this is where we're at in the world, right? Life's so complex, we need to have boundaries and structures to help us out. I think that's almost your thesis. Applying RISA and just setting things up in this way, I mean, have you seen it play out like this in, in boardrooms, HR meetings, that kind that's of thing? That's a great question. I mean, I, and, I, and I talk to businesses and 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 one of the, the troubles they have, actually, one of the things that people say about people in my generation is a kind of a conflict avoidance, right? So this kind of, yeah, I don't know whether you notice that. Um, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. um, and and it's possible to avoid conflict with uh, technology, you know, yeah. uh, text messages and uh, avoiding phone calls, avoid, avoiding IRL confrontation. Totally noticed it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that actually, I'd love you to talk about that because you do refer to this as the bigger problem. You say that people quietly resolving not to disagree anymore and just to keep their thoughts to themselves or with people who already agree with them. And that, you know, I think you this is your phrase, that the cost of being too agreeable is a small life. I mean, that's a lot to take in, but you're absolutely right. There is a generational thing happening and I think it's not just an age group thing. I think it's the era we're in. We're all yes. finding it easier to avoid confrontation and I can understand why because it just seems like there's so much bad faith arguing going on out there where we're just like I don't even know how to manage the first the first steps of this yeah yeah t- talk us through the problems there of avoiding agreement I mean your thesis to the whole thing is we're not gre- we're not disagreeing enough you know that, that that's the real issue yeah I'll I'll just um answer quickly the the previous point because I don't think I fully answered it about you're such a debater. You remember the Am points. I? Yeah, I love it. I love it. No, I just it. don't want to. You know, this is actually. <laughs> you know what this is? It's it's actually. Um, so I was a newspaper reporter, right? And I just hated it when people <laughs> dodged questions. So I'm, I'm well, you were at AFR, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I did a exactly. cadetship with the AFR. At did Parliament you? Oh, yeah. Same education. Same education. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's room to be conscious, right? Like, and think about some of the knowledge that we've become acquainted with, we're now familiar with being deliberate in our breathing, right? We can do it for disagreement. And and whether I see it in real life or not, with a lot of these frameworks and with this advice, I don't embody it day to day. 
because I'm also tired and I'm also cranky sometimes. But also there's better and there's worse, right? So remembering even to do a few of the things on the RISA checklist, I think gives it a better chance of success than not. So that's kind of how I think about that. And then this, this other question is just really the heart of it, right? So for me, the moment that we're living through, which is this moment of real polarization and, and ugly, divisive disagreements, comes in some ways from someplace really positive, which is we've given in an unprecedented way so many segments of our population the ability to speak. And the differences, many of which have always been there, are coming to light. Right? So we've never sustained this much diversity with giving as many people a platform to speak and better done our disagreements, better managed it. So I'm not a nostalgic person for some golden era of disagreement. I'm not sure that ever existed, but it has presented some problems that are ours to deal with. And as you mentioned, I worry both about the pain and the relationships that are lost, the communities that are strained because of our bad disagreements. But I worry more about the people who see all that and say, why would you pay that cost? Why would you take that risk and engage in disagreement? And go back to the mode that I know well because I lived it as a kid mm. of nodding along, wearing a distant smile, right? It's not even a full kind of smile and, and retreating into yourself. I do think that's a smaller life because you lose out on all the things you could have learned, out, learned about other people, but also about yourself through the process of conversation. And it's a smaller life for us as a community because there's less overlap, right? And there's less of that to go back to your wrestle metaphor, that's where community emerges, when the boundaries of one and other blur a little bit um, and we, we step away from the conversation change. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before we go too much further, I'd love you to um, actually talk about relationships. I think that's something that people are probably really wanting to get some advice on. You have a chapter entitled Relationships, How to Fight and Stay Together. 
How does one do that, Bo? <laughs> How do you fight and stay together? I think the first thing is to recognize why it's so hard. And kind of similar to the political point, it's hard for wonderful reasons, which is when you commit your life to another person or just to be around together a whole lot, many more opportunities for disagreement come up, right? So to go back to the RISA framework, everything feels real. <laughs> everything feels important. It's hard to be specific when your lives are intertwined in this way, all things speaking to one another. And on the aligned point, it feels like we should be aligned always, right? That that was in the vows or that was in the commitment mm. that we made after the fifth day. And once you don't have that, it can be a really destabilizing thing. And I would say practically the point about Agreement preceding disagreement becomes really important here. So the thing I see a lot in my relationships is just laundry-related disputes <laughs> leading to, you know, just Meaning of life discussions. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, this, the, the socks really are not that profound mm. and neither are dirty dishes. And sometimes you have to say, wait, there is no symbolic import here. We're really just talking about the dishes or the laundry. And in as much as we want to talk about other things, right? Who's bearing more of the responsibilities in the home? Or are you taking things for granted? Are you not thoughtful about your contributions? That's a disagreement to be had on those terms, using perhaps the dishwashing as an example, but then you've actually changed the subject, right? So you want to come to some agreement about what you're actually talking about. And I think maybe, Sarah, the last thing I'll say is these are the disagreements where it's least intuitive to go through structured exercises, right? Because mm -hmm. this is where things should flow. And actually with some of this, you know, four W's for constructing an argument, rebuttal, rhetoric, people do versions of this at work because they know before going into a meeting, to write down some thoughts, right? Or to prepare for objections or questions you're going to get. But we so rarely do it in our personal relationships. And I think making a room for structure, for intentionality, for a bit of the craft of it, I hope it can help. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Intuitively, we think we shouldn't have to do that. It would almost look, you know, be a crook look to arrive at a, a domestic chat, you know, on the couch one night with a, with a dot-pointed list. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not sexy, but neither are disagreements <laughs> for the most part. Good point. <laughs> Which is the least sexy or the yeah, situation you choose? That's really good advice. I think that whole framing things and discussing at a sort of a pulled-back meta level, even that, even that act of pulling back from the scenario, mm -hmm. from the muck and the mire, and agreeing on what we're all seeing, the bigger the bigger picture, the woods for the trees um, mm. or the other way around, is, um, is such an important exercise. And that process in itself calms you down. It takes you away from that heated moment, even just momentarily, enough so that we can, uh, we can get to a good place together. Now, I, Bo, would like to artfully argue with you on something. <laughs> I know that you've written previously that Australia, and you write this from your position being over in the States, that Australia is a nation of arguers 
And I've got to say, I'm not sure that I agree with that. My experience has been that Australians tend to be, and again, just going back to what we were saying earlier, sort of about the generational piece, I think it's a mm. little bit to do with that, the times that we're in. But I think I think of Australians as being sort of fence sitters. We don't like to rock the boat. We don't like the poppies to get too high. It's like, she'll be right. Like that is our modus operandi. And Mm. people get a little bit panicky when someone comes into the room and says, actually, we might not be all right. You know, whether it's a climate activist, whether it's a, you know, somebody from a racial minority going, actually over here, things are Mm. not easygoing. So, I'm really wondering why you feel that we are a nation of arguers or maybe there's a more refined point there as well that we're not very good arguers. I don't know. Yeah, it's good and bad, I think. So in some ways, Sarah, I actually think we're we're describing a similar phenomenon, which is one thing I notice a lot at home is we don't give in to authority at least not in the same way that I see in some other countries. We're happy to call the prime minister by a nickname and say, we don't want you getting too big for your boots, even though you're the representative of the country. And when in the scenarios that you describe, there's some ambitious agenda put forward, right? There's an ambitious person. There's a a challenging perspective. There is an instinct to and a real proficiency in disagreeing with that, right? And pushing back. And when I when I talk about my book back home, I perceive both of those things. One is an incredible intelligence in the population. I think of a lot of it owing to our education system, but also a kind of a, a willingness to, you know, sort of fold the arms and just quarrel a little bit. And, and just say, you know, you haven't got it exactly right for X, Y, Z reasons. And then the other part of it is just the ease of sarcasm and our style of humor as well, right? Of just sort of cutting ideas down to size a little bit. I think there are incredible strengths in that. So I think we have a kind of a sense of perspective that I think is missing from a lot of very large metropolises and civilizational powers. But at the same time, the pathology or the dark side of that is precisely what you said, which is in instances where you need to get moving, right, where you need to innovate, where you need to change, that resistance, that kind of like wrangling can manifest as fence sitting because you can think of arguments against all positions. And in this instance, the wisdom is knowing when to stop wrangling and to do something. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's almost like that example of the partner who says, no, Hawaii is too hot. Oh, no, too many churches in Adelaide, right? Australia is kind of that partner who's just going, no, no. So we're really good at calling out bullshit and that's actually quite wonderful. Wonderful thing, wonderful thing. Yeah, I think that's why we've managed to vote in some uh, leaders who, you know, well, we've voted out the bullshitters, put it that way. Um, or at least the worst of them, whereas the rest of the world really hasn't been doing that. But I compare Australia with, say, the French, who will actually go onto the street and protest and, you know, go on strike and let garbage build up. You know, we we actually don't go that far. So we're neggers. We'll be neggers, but we don't then flip it and take a stance and fight for it. Yeah, I mean, one one kind of thing that a mentor of mine once said is that, you know, it might be, our head of state, right, being elsewhere puts us kind of in the minds of being custodians, 
right? And you know, while the true monarch is away. Whereas I I, I noticed, you know, mm. France, true presidential systems, there is a sense that we can take this vehicle where we want. And I do think, I mean, they could benefit from some Australians, some of the countries, right? You know, I, and I miss that Australian attitude when I'm in the US, but but at the same time, it's not the only voice and not the only mode that we're capable of. And it's not the only mode that we should be speaking in. That's a really interesting perspective about the idea of a, a head of state, like almost having an adult above us who will take care of things. So we can sit there and whinge, but we don't have to stake our territory or our position because, oh, somebody else will do that. That yeah. could be a legacy, you know, given that we've only been here with our Westminster system for for 250-odd years. The other perspective I'd throw into that, that for many, many decades, centuries, uh, we were so far away and so we would we had an outward focus and so we were able to be quite critical from a distance, you know, and as a result, we became very good. I mean, I think we're world champion debaters, I think, you know, at a high school level. Yeah, we've got yeah. a very good legacy and, of course, you know, a two-time world champion in yourself. Uh, but what I think has happened as we've become more internationalised, we're more of a global world, of course, you know, your generation haven't necessarily benefited from that we're the outlier. We're the outlier who can actually develop an individual perspective, which used to be seen as quite radical. You know, in the 90s, yeah. Australia was very innovative. We produced all kinds of artists, yes. creators, musicians, actors, sports people. We won shit, you know, yes, because yes. we came from the outside. We were the outsider. Yes. Uh, and I think that has shifted, but we haven't stepped up into that new responsibility and staked who we are. And we default to don't rock boats, she'll be right, um, yeah. that sort of colonised perspective. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm I'm filled with optimism, really. Whenever I think about Australia, I've, I've, I've so, I'm so grateful for that native intelligence, that sense of proportion being sensible and i think just two things in response to what you just said one is it has been amazing to see australians bringing that peripheral outlook that antipodean perspective and seeing how it can take over the media industry in the us right how it can take over banking in in some instances so you're right that individually there has been these success stories and i wonder through globalization, the periphery is not, you know, as salient a concept as it once was. How can you bring that peripheral perspective and sensibility as a nation and channel it towards something creative, positive, something we haven't seen before? And I think the other just piece of that is that that sense of the adult being out of the country, in some ways... I think the answer and the way in which we should proceed is not to get rid of that value of custodianship, which of course in Australia has the great advantage of there being an indigenous culture that has enormously sophisticated thinking on this subject and custodianship as something we can use, carry on and adapt for the modern age as a way in which we should think about not only our personal lives, but our responsibility as citizens, because we do mm. want to view ourselves as in this stream of time trying to make a contribution but to while being responsible 
Yeah, well, this is probably a good segue to a, an issue that's very alive and real here in Australia. I'd love your perspective on because it's an argument. It's a debate that we are currently having, and that's for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. I don't know, Bo, if you're ahead of all the intricacies on this, but the real risk of hitting the loggerhead based on going backwards and forwards without artful debate. And so we now have the wording for the voice that will go into the referendum, which will be put to Australians at the end of the year. However, the opposition is taking the the wrangling approach, right, where just saying no to things and asking for more detail and sort of kicking the can down the road with a whole bunch of these sort of almost bad faith interjections rather than actually staking a position. And it's actually a really bad faith argument, in my opinion, because they're saying we want more detail, but the whole point of a referendum, it's meant to be an in-principle concept. It's not meant to provide detail. And in fact, it's the parliament that will determine the detail as representatives of the people. So it's a really bad faith argument and it's bogging down the discussion. I'm just wondering whether you have advice for Australia based on, you know, how to argue well, because this is an important argument. We should be debating it. We shouldn't be worried that there are discussions and questions but we need to be very mm. mindful and wary of these these wrangling sure. tactics. I have two thoughts, and I'll I'll pitch it at the level of I hope this is advice that people on either sides of the debate can endorse. That's my hope for these two pieces. Beautiful. Of so one is we have to be very careful about fear and dog whistling taking the place of arguments. Right, So the great achievement of debate is to put argument first. So rather than just raising questions or signaling possibility, we should require the people raising those concerns to justify why that means we shouldn't do this or what are the mechanisms through which these potentially bad consequences might actually happen. And it's a feature of kind of broadcast that, You can't always do that for political leaders, but certainly in our day-to-day conversations with our partners and friends and family members, you should be able to ask, right, and and to draw the argument out of them so that it's not just a feeling, it it has some substance, right? So that's one thing. And I think the second piece of advice is to make sure it's a well-matched argument which means an argument between two positions. So it can't be an argument between one side putting forward a proposal and then the other side just coming up with objections, as you say. You have to say, you know, we make lots of decisions under uncertainty and given those uncertainties, what are you advocating for? So by all means, taking the objections and and rebuttal seriously, but also demanding on both sides that, they be clear for what the argument is about. So in the case of The Voice, really, the problem we're trying to solve, what we're debating here and arguing for or against, really, is closing the gap in the lived experience of Indigenous people and the rest of Australia. It's a massive issue. And so one side is saying we need a voice to Parliament. It's the first step, you know, blah, blah, blah. The other side, well, What are they saying? Apart from, oh, well, we need more detail. It's not going to happen without more detail. So, yeah, I suppose if 
average Australians out there who are having to determine, which they will have to determine whether they're going to vote yes or no to the simple referendum question later in the year, this is the kind of thing that they could be doing at home, right, over the the dinner table or with friends at the barbecue, is asking somebody, well, what's your position? What do you think you might be voting? And if people say, well, I just want more detail, you could say, well, what would actually I should ask you Bo what would be the framing there what would you present to somebody who's just going defaulting to that that wrangling tactic yeah it's it's a great question and and to be clear you know from the position of the people who feel there aren't enough details for example that can be a genuine concern right and and in many instances they wouldn't experience that as a bad faith tactic they would just kind of be like this seems to be what we're hearing at a at a leadership level, and and it's true. I don't know some things as just a, a an average citizen thinking about this. Well, you, not everyone's a constitutional lawyer, and don't, they don't understand that the point of a referendum is an in principle vote. It's not about the detail. Precisely. So then you might say to the person, "So it's true that you might not know some things." And as you said, if if we have a shared goal, which is trying to close the gap. What would be a better way to try and do that? Is that better way politically feasible in a way that this is not? And so notice these questions are trying to get them to stake out a position that's more Mm. full because it could be that there's an alternative to the voice. It could be that it could be more in action, right? And whatever it is, getting them to articulate precisely what it is that they're arguing for, I think can be useful. And I think just the other part of that, um, Sarah, is just being careful to note that in our personal disagreements um, and in the perspectives that people bring, and this is another reason why I have a lot of optimism on, on this and other subjects, is people tend to be a lot more sophisticated than political leaders because they look at issues a little bit more discreetly, right? They consider th- this part of the argument works, this part of the argument doesn't. It, it's very rare for people to just subscribe wholesale, right, to the mm. kind of objections. So to know and to take each conversation as one conversation at a time, to know where is this person getting off the bus, right, or where are they diverging from me and focusing on those areas of disagreement, I think is just a a great opportunity in personal disagreements. And as you say, it comes back to what is the point of a referendum. And one point that I would add is the point is it's democracy forcing, right? It, It forces us to talk. And that's the only thing that gives legitimacy to the result, whatever it is. It's the vote is important, of course, but the substance of it, the body of it, I think is meant to be in the disagreements and hopefully the good faith disagreements that we as citizens have. Yeah, and I think um, it, that's the cornerstone of, of a democracy is the ability to to disagree, but to disagree well. Um, that's a wonderful note to end on. Bo, that's so helpful. I'm a lover of argument and debating. And so, yeah, I love that you very much encourage people to disagree more and just to get kinder in the way that we disagree. And I think we're seeing that. Recently we had a New South Wales election and um, what was wonderful is that both sides, the the party that was defeated, the leader actually in his defeat speech, the first thing he said was 
my opposition, the, the, the dude that won, is a great person and he'll lead this state really, really well. And then the new leader, he came out and said, you know, if there's one thing we did here is we showed that an election campaign doesn't have to be nasty. Nobody will be able to argue again that it can't be done. So I'm optimistic too, particularly when we see that kind of way of arguing. They argued, but they argued on the points, their their disagreement in policy, never the person, never the man, the woman. So yeah, I'm very much encouraged by that. And I'm hoping that that will translate into a very decent referendum. Yeah, likewise. And when we, Mm. and when we as citizens disagree in that way, my hope is our political leaders have no option but to catch up because that's where the electorate is at. Be the change we want to see. All yeah. right. Thanks, Bo. Sarah, thanks so much. It could have gone on for ages. I enjoyed that so much. That was a bit of a life hacky kind of conversation. So I'll give a quick overview of Bo's main take homes here for you, just so you can be reminded. When we are trying to be persuasive, there are two things that we need to do. We need to ensure our argument is both true and important. And that second bit is something that we often forget to cover. Bo suggests that we work to sort of four Ws. What is the argument that you're trying to make? Why is it true? When has it happened before? And who cares? I kind of think that bit is actually the salient point in any kind of argument. Who cares? Why should we care? But I think the most helpful point that Bo brings to all of this is is the importance of framing an argument, having a conversation about the conversation you're about to have and then referring back to that framing throughout the conversation, particularly when it gets a little bit heated. And he uses this thing called the RISA framework and says don't be afraid to use it in personal relationship arguments as well. So RISA, it's ask yourself, are you just in a sort of a raw moment or is this a real legitimate thing that you need to debate? The second one is, is it important? And is it specific enough? So say if you're having a discussion about, I don't know, not doing the laundry often enough, ensure that that is the frame that you're going to work to in the time frame rather than a broad conversation about, I don't know, the meaning of your relationship. And then the final thing is ensure that you are aligned with the other person in your reasons for having the dispute. And I think that's really, really key. A couple of other take-homes that I took from the conversation is that we are least persuasive when we're certain, and that's why he brings in that side-switch technique, which is to take the other person's position, stand in their shoes for five minutes, write down what they would be seeing, and make sure that you attend to that when you're having the argument. He also says that the cost of being too agreeable is a small life. I could not agree more. He also says that good argument can be the very engine of depolarization and change, and I think that's a pretty wild idea. So really, disagreement is a responsibility. We've got to rise to it because there are a lot of conflicts that we need to sort out and we need to do it together and artfully. All right, so just a reminder, if you want to do me a favour, share this podcast with, I don't know, three people who you think may not have listened to Wild before. That would be awesome. In the meantime, until I speak to you again next week, stay wild, dear friends. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.